Hello, this is Jamie from Stillmeyer Games, and I am so excited to you to excited to be here today with designer Connie Vogelman, designer of our newest game, Apiary. Apiary. Connie, thank you so much for joining me. Do you want to let people know a little bit about who you are before we jump into today's list? Yeah, sure. Happy to. Uh, first of all, I just want to say I'm really happy to happy to be here. I'm really excited about Apiary. I'm so excited for people to get to uh, to see it and to learn about it. Um, and maybe, uh, yeah, I'm excited to to talk about it. Uh, just for background, this is my uh, first published game. I'm really been really excited to work with Stonemaier on it. Uh, my day job is an attorney, so that's not really very exciting. I live in Washington D.C. and has been sort of making the rounds. I'm also a beekeeper, fairly new to beekeeping, but I did sort of grow up with it uh, in the family, and so that was a, obviously a really big inspiration uh, for Apiary as well. So that's a little bit about me. And actually, we're filming this on a Tuesday, and today on today's Design Diary, I mentioned that Connie was very kind, kind to send me a little bit of the honey that she. Uh, got from her bees and it was really good honey i'm still enjoying it it's lasted a long time it's it's very good yeah um, yeah awesome uh it's kind of boomer bust you either tend to get almost no honey at all or i think this year is going to be a real big one we're actually uh, doing our honey harvest this weekend and i'm expecting cool. to get a good 150 pounds of honey or something like that so we're gonna have have a lot more coming up soon <laughs> 150 pounds of honey from That's two hives in my backyard uh they've just been going absolutely gangbusters this year so that's incredible well, for those of you who are watching who don't know what Apiary is, there's a lot of information on our website about it. A very brief explanation of the game is that it is a one to five competitive worker placement, engine building, engine building tied to tile placement game um, with a double-sided board for different player counts. It kind of has six different mini game actions on the board, different things that you're doing depending on the strength of your workers. We'll talk a little bit more about the mechanisms in the game as we connect them to our top 10 favorite games that you might enjoy if you like apiary or vice versa anything else that you want to add to let people know if they've never heard of apiary before connie uh no i don't think so i mean just sort of core mechanism is really this sort of worker bumping with sort of the bees age and hibernate and i think for me at least that's absolutely my favorite part of the game so i'm excited i'll talk about that quite a bit more uh, as we get into our lists yeah oh i, I guess i should have mentioned yeah the theme is obviously bees we've talked about bees a lot but it's also space bees so they're bees that have evolved in terms of their uh, they've become even more intelligent than they already are, even more technologically advanced or a lot more technologically advanced, and they've taken to space. And so that is the theme of this game. So yeah, uh, yeah. we're going to jump in here and talk about our top, each of us will do our top five favorite games that we think you'll like if you like Apiary or vice versa. So Connie, what is your number five game that you want to talk about today? Yeah, sure. My number five game um, is obviously a Stonemaier game, and it's one of your designs, uh, and this is Charterstone. And first, I just want to say that I'm not going to actually keep holding this up because otherwise I'm going to get, you know, it's going to be in the way. But anyway, so uh, Stone is absolutely a wonderful gaming experience. My game group played through it a couple of times. We really enjoyed it. I'm actually not going to talk about the most direct relationship between Stone and Apiary, which is probably the worker bumping, because I think we're going to touch on that a little bit later. One thing I really wanted to touch on and emphasize on about Stone is actually the end game condition. So in Stone, <clears throat> you have kind of a track that counts down over the course of the game. Players can advance that track by taking uh, specific actions, not any action, but some very specific actions in the game. What I really like about this, and this connects to Apiary in a couple of ways, is sort of twofold. One is you have some sense of when the game's going to end. Uh, it kind of changes uh, over time. It's kind of an evolving end game state, uh, but you don't know exactly when it's going to end. So you always need to be kind of adapting to figure out exactly how much longer you have and how to deal with that. Um, the other piece of it that I really, really enjoy is the fact that 
you as an individual player can have some amount of control over that end game state. Uh, you know, if you take some of the, the, those actions that really accelerate it, uh, the game will end a little bit more quickly. If you really kind of try to hold back, the game will end a little bit more slowly. And I really kind of like that push pull that you as an individual player have over that so you can control what you want your own game to look like. And that's very, very similar to apiary. Uh, the end game condition in apiary is if you, uh, after you hibernate a certain number of bees, you know, the bees started out at strength one, they go to two to three to four, and then they hibernate. And once they are done hibernating, they go into this hibernation comb. When the hibernation comb is full, the game ends. A lot of apiary is about kind of manipulating your bees, when and where you place them, when they get bumped, uh, when you decide to speed level them, when you decide to actually can bump them down in a couple of ways. And so that really gives players a lot of kind of control over this end game state. And so I really like that kind of push pull and dynamism. So uh, that's a uh, charter stone and kind of how it relates to apiary. And uh, one question that I've got from a few people about how this hibernation works in apiary is um, when you when you when you have a worker go to the hibernation comb, you have instead of placing the actual worker miniature of which there are only four per player in the game. Instead of placing that in the hibernation comb, you instead place a token representing that worker and that the mini the worker miniature just goes back to the general supply representing a new worker that you can gain later. Yep. Um, and I, I know we had actually very briefly talked about, you know, do we want to try to have seven miniatures? And a big part right. of that was actually sort of those game length, length considerations that if somebody's going to breed up to seven bees and age them all one at a time, so the, their whole fleet is level one, level two, level three, it actually ends up creating a game that's probably longer than we wanted it to be. So that was part of the reason by, why I think we went with just the four miniatures um, was to actually sort of help control that game length a little bit so that it's a little bit more kind of uh, cabined. Right. And like Charterstone also, I think it scales really well. And Charterstone has a track where you start, I believe you start at different places depending on the player count in Charterstone. Uh, we have the double-sided board in, in Apiary and that you have a few more areas on one side of the board or definitely more, more spaces, more areas to scale up to the player count. So I think it, it scales really well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that's a wonderful example. I'm honored that you brought up Charterstone for this. Oh yeah, uh, of course. We, we should know that Charterstone is a campaign game. Apiary is not a campaign game. It's a, you know, build up your, your, your hive, your faction, and then clean it up and try again with something different, a different combination the next time you play. That's Connie's number five. Um, and I need to take notes on these because we kind of talked about this in advance, but I don't know exactly what Connie's picks are going to be today or what order they'll be in. So I'll note Charterstone here. My number five is probably the loosest connection to Apiary, but it, this game really captures the feel of Apiary to me and vice versa. And that is Sulkin. Um, I think the biggest connection to Apiary that I feel about Sulkin is the workers gaining in strength uh, the longer they simply exist. So it's essentially a passive benefit in Sulkin where you put these workers on these dials and the longer you let the workers remain on the dials, the more powerful they become. That isn't exactly the case in Apiary. If you just leave a worker sitting out on the board, they are not inherently going to gain strength. But every time a worker is bumped or every time you retrieve workers, they they gain strength from when they start at one and they, they go all the way up to four and then they hibernate. And you don't really have to do anything. You do, it's, it's one of those passive benefits that feels good. Your workers are simply getting stronger by existing for longer in the game. Um, and so even though it's a little, it's definitely done differently in Sulkin, I, I think it captures that similar feeling between the two. There are other connections too in Sulkin in terms of, uh, and again, they're, they're kind of loose connections, but I think it still captures the feeling. The, the way the tech tracks work in Sulkin, you're, you're leveling up in different abilities. There are uh, ongoing abilities, recruit tiles, 
in apiary where you're leveling up in different specific ways. You're making certain actions better. Um, and even as your workers get better, they are making the actions that, they, that you select for those workers improve as well. Are there any other strong connections between Silken and Apiary that I'm forgetting here? No, I don't think so. Um, maybe some of the endgame buildings or monuments, I think, in Zolkin. I can't remember exactly yeah. what they're called. I think are a little bit similar to the carvings. Right. But yeah, I agree that it's absolutely like the way your workers go around the dials on Zolkin is sort of very similar in the sense that they're leveling up. Uh, I'll also say personally, Zolkin always breaks my brain because trying to figure yeah. out which turns you mm. want to be pulling back workers versus placing them and how far you want that to be around the wheel is always, it's one of those puzzles that's just absolutely delightful. So. And that, yeah, you're right. That's a, a great connection. It, the same puzzle as in Apiary. Is this a turn where you're going to place a worker? And typically you're placing all of your workers in Apiary. You're not pulling them back early, but uh, but it's still a tough decision. Like how, how long are you going to stretch those turns before you have to do a retrieve turn? Are you going to try to bump yourself? Or are you going to hope that someone else bumps you? Um, I, I, there's another game that we'll talk about with those connections. Um, but I'm also glad you brought up the monuments. I'd forgotten to mention those, but in Apiary, there are all these there are a bunch of tiles that refill the development tiles, the recruit tiles, the farm tiles. They refill as you gain them. But there's also, similar to Sulkin, a single row of carving tiles, similar to the monuments, where they are set out at the beginning of the game. They are high level goals that you will rarely get more than one or two of. You've probably seen players yeah. get more, yeah. but it's pretty rare. You could um, maybe you can maybe squeeze out three if you were really going for it. But yeah, I yeah. think one or two is definitely more common. So you're really building up to them and they usually have a big payoff related to something specific you did in the game if you focused on one specific thing and you can see them from the beginning of the game and they don't refill so there is this element of scarcity there and a little bit of tension am i going to be able to get this one that i really want absolutely so that's silken my number five what is your number four johnny yeah my number four is village which is a little bit of an older game and i'm actually curious um jamie if you or maybe any of the folks who are watching this uh, know of games that did this first, uh, but I'm really interested with Villager. The reason I'm bringing it up is because of this concept that is a dynamic worker pool, that this, the workers that you start the game with aren't the same workers as the workers that you end the game with. And at least for me, this was the first time that I was introduced to this concept uh, in Village. And so the way that it works uh, in Village is that you have basically a first generation of workers, you start the game with them. Over the course of the game, as you're getting new workers, you get your second generation, your third generation, and your fourth generation. And Village has this really fun time track. So as you take different actions over the course of the game, you advance on this little time track. It's sort of right this little circle that's right in front of you. Every time you get back to go, one of your workers has to die. And one of the workers that has to die is one of the oldest generation. And so I think there's a couple of really interesting connections to Apiary here. And one is obviously that your worker, your worker pool is changing over the course of the game. The other thing that I wanted to highlight though is in both games, I think which worker you place onto which action space and when is really um, crucial throughout the game. So in Village, if you place a worker on a spot, it basically will stay there until that worker dies. And so the decision of whether to place a generation one worker or two worker or three worker there is can be really consequential, especially because um, a little bit similar to the hibernation cone, but a little bit different, uh, graveyard spots in Village are very limited and they depend on what action that worker is placed on. So if you have a worker in the church and that worker dies, it goes to sort of its own graveyard spot. And so a lot of it is kind of competing for those spots and figuring out which of your workers to kill when, which all of us, so all of a sudden a decision that you made five or six or seven turns ago about which worker to place on that spot, obviously uh, all of a sudden has really significant consequences later. And I think with Apiary, the way you're trying to be bumped, you're potentially trying to avoid uh, bumping other players. You're trying to take advantage of other workers that, that players have placed on the board. All of a sudden adds a lot of sort of consequence and significance to which specific worker uh, you place in, in each spot. So 
Uh, that was sort of the connection that I wanted to make with Village, but excellent game. It's a little bit of an older game, but I think it really, really holds up. So I don't know, Jamie, if you had other thoughts on, on Village and how it might connect to Apiary. That is the main connection I was thinking of. It's been a while since I played Village, but uh, I think it's, a few people brought it up. And as I recall, maybe in one of the early design diaries, in, in one of the earlier versions of Apiary, were the bees dying? And did you... Yeah. you uh, and so we obviously moved away from that. So there's that kind of that morbid theme in, in Village. Yeah. Uh, what was what yeah. was the original version of that for Apiary? Yeah, the original, well, so it actually used to look a little bit more like a time track in Charterstone, mm -hmm. where you basically were just counting down the track until they died. I think the hibernation comb, okay. a little area control puzzle, and the bonuses associated with that were added during development. And I think they're a great, a great addition. Um, but yeah, because if you're, you know, the original version of Apiary was just regular bees. We moved into space later, which I think is wonderful for about a dozen different reasons. Um, and I know some of that's in some of the design diaries. Um, but you know, bees don't live very long. I mean, most bees and winter bees are a little bit of an exception, but you know, most of your kind of summer honeybees live for about a month at most, you know, a few weeks. And so it seemed sort of very thematic at that point in time that each, you know, level of the bee was a week in that bee's life. And so at that point in time, they did die. But I think because we could move it to space, we could kind of turn it into this sort of adaptation. They could hibernate um, instead of actually dying because, you know, as you know, real bees don't actually hibernate. Um, but I really like that tweak in that addition. Plus it makes it feel a little bit better about like sending your bees off. Like, well, now they're just sleeping. They're not actually, actually gone, so. Right. Nice, yeah. I think that's a great, I think Village is a great comparison. I need to get it back to the table. I haven't played it in forever. Yeah. Um, so it's, a, it's a really, it's a really good one. I mean, we obviously still have it in our collection and we, we yeah. call our collection pretty aggressively, so. Nice. So that's village number four. My number four is Ark Nova. And I put it at number four as much as I love this game because, there, I mean, there's a lot going on in Ark Nova that is not connected to Apiary, but there is the ecological theme. Uh, we're talking about animals here and animals in, in Apiary. And uh, I can't remember the point in the design process, but at one point we, uh, we you added the, the hive mats in, in Apiary um, and added specific bonuses on those mat, mats where when you build on top of those uh, those portions of the hive mat, and I'll hold up one in a second so we can talk about it. Uh, you gain a specific bonus, and the more uh, the, the deeper that you went into the design, you really themed each hive mat around specific concepts. So they, it's not like you can get a little bit of everything on every hive mat, which is kind of what happens in, in Arc Nova until you get to the asymmetric sides when they get more focused. Instead, they're they're very asymmetric in Apiary, where they're they're themed after very specific things that you are getting when you're covering them up. Um, I think Apiary does a good job of nudging you in a specific direction without saying you need to do this. But I think those hive mats, it feels good. It always feels good to place a tile, even if there's no bonus underneath it, but it feels extra good to uh, to cover up a bonus and get it. And that's that's something that feels good in Arc Nova too, when you're able to build out your zoo, build out these hex tiles, or they're slightly different in Arc Nova, but you know, they're essentially hex tiles. When you build them out so that they do cover up bonuses and you get those instant bonuses. Um, yeah. So I love that connection in, in Apiary. I'll hold some up while you, while you talk about your process with that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the and I actually think this is a really good, really good example of like why playtesting and, and the blind playtesting that Stonemaier does is, is so wonderful because of the playtesting, the hive mounts were actually something that was uh, suggested by a playtester. Um, yeah. Ooh, that's, that, and that is actually my favorite of the hive mats because you get a free, um, a free development tile. And those are some of my favorite tiles in the game. Um, when you build on the second to last spot at the top, you get a free one in the last spot. And I absolutely love that. Um, I think that's sort of one that's just, um, that's actually probably the most generic of the the ones, the Ware, oh, um, it's upside down, but that's, I mean, it yeah. doesn't really matter. Um, and that one, you get a little bit of resources and seed card. I think that one is purely, uh, purely resources. 
Um, and then that one I think is also one of my favorites because it gives you essentially free uh, breed action. So you get your, your workforce. So if you're kind of running with that hive, you get um, essentially a, a free um, freebies. And then that one uh, encourages sort of a, a variety of the Langstroth there. Um, encourages a variety of different developments. But yeah, so it was a playtester feedback and they were like, hey, I'd really like uh, really like hive mats. What do you guys think of that? You know, and I think they might've actually specifically cited to Arc Nova. Um, I don't remember that for sure. I don't remember the timing, but I know that that was a playtester uh, suggestion. And I think it's a really great one. I think it really adds to the game because before you were just kind of building out free form. Um, but those hive mats, is, as Jamie said, um, really kind of push you in a different direction in a way that I think is really fun and satisfying. Yeah. Are there any other, other connections to Arc Nova that I'm not thinking of here? Yeah, yeah. I think that's the main one. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. So that is my number four, Arc Nova. What is your number three? Yeah, my number three is Beyond the Sun. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a game that we really, really enjoy. Um, this one isn't wasn't really a direct inspiration for Apiary. It came out a little bit later, but I think it's a very good example of a game where like, if you like Beyond the Sun, you should maybe check out Apiary. If you've been interested in Apiary and you haven't played Beyond the Sun, I highly recommend it. Um, and a lot of it's just sort of the theme. They're obviously both space games. I think they probably have about a similar weight and complexity. Um, you know, they're also both games, they're both worker placement games, although uh, Beyond the Sun does use actual worker, worker blocking, so it's a little bit different, and there's not any kind of direct combat or fighting, you know, you're not shooting at each other in either game. Um, but there's a couple of elements in particular that I wanted to tease out a little bit, and one of them is sort of exploration. I think both games have a very sort of strong exploration vibe. In Beyond the Sun, you're kind of developing this giant tech tree. Uh, and you never really know what you're going to get. So you're always pulling cards from a bit a deck and then they're permanently added to the board, which are more worker placement spots and more sort of ongoing abilities. Um, and then also the planets, you're kind of uh, colonizing. I think they do use the word colonizing in Beyond the Sun. Let's all assume that they are unpopulated planets, but you are colonizing planets in Beyond the Sun. And those are all very different. So as they come out of the deck, there's a lot of um, kind of variability in discovery. I think that's very similar to Apiary. I mean, you were, were uh, in Apiary, you use a uh, shared a queenship to explore these different planets. They sort of flip up, uh, yeah, <laughs> I love that miniature. Um, and, you know, the planets will come out in a different order. You also have all the tiles that are coming out of the deck. So there's, there's this real sense of exploration and discovery. The other thing that I think is really present in both games is this combination of kind of long-term strategy versus instant adaptation. Um, you know, in Beyond the Sun, the people who are really good at the game, and I am not really good at the game, but people who are very, very good, kind of have a plan from the beginning of how they're going to hit these very critical milestones throughout the game. And yet they're still able to adapt as, worker placement spots are taken or as new planets or new technologies come out. I think that's very similar in Apiary. Like you really might be working toward a big carving or towards some of your seed cards or your faction abilities, but then you're always sort of evaluating the board state. And, oh, that person just put that B on that spot. Can I use that? Can I leverage that? So I think there's this kind of real sense of mix of strategy and tactics in both games as well. So that's beyond the sun. There's one other connection, if you don't mind that I, that I, oh, I think is pretty strong between the games. I think beyond the sun has a nice sense of a positive player interaction or at least collective player interaction in a competitive game. Because in Beyond the Sun, you're advancing this tech tree, but it is a shared tech tree. All players are able to use this tech tree. And I think you did some really clever things in Apiary to make uh, that that are either like neutral player interaction, things that you have to keep an eye on for other players, or just straight up positive player interaction, where as you are exploring these planets and discovering them, you are also pollinating, you're making them better for, yep. for you and other players to revisit also with the the dance. I love, I love talking about the dances, but the, the dance um, bonus on the convert action where you are creating a resource conversion, a new one for you and all other players to use for the rest of the game. There's probably some other examples too, but I love those forms of, of growth on the board where all mm -hmm. players get that, that expansion, that growth that benefits everybody while they're playing, even in a competitive game. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, if somebody flips up a really good advancement uh, and be on the sun, I mean, you can you can run over to the there to that spot yeah. and take it. I mean, you know, because they're already there, they probably get first use of it. But I mean, they are, as you said, building out the board for everyone to take advantage of. So. That's Beyond the Sun at number three for Connie. My number three is the other Stillmeyer game that we'll mention today, and that is Euphoria. So I think Euphoria has the distinction of being a less complex game than Apiary, and yet it is harder to learn and teach. Uh, we put a lot of effort into making Apiary, despite its complexity, really easy to get into and start playing and start taking turns. Euphoria's board is all over the place with stuff that makes it look much more complicated than it is. Um, but the main connection in Euphoria are is the worker placement system. In Euphoria, you have some dice that you're placing. The dice represent workers. You're placing them on certain actions where those numbers often matter. Not all the time, but they often matter um, for where you're placing the workers. And there's a bumping mechanism. Uh, it's it's a, a game without rounds, so you're either placing uh, placing a worker or retrieving workers on your turn. And you can, if a worker in most spots, if there is a worker blocking a spot that you want, you can still place a worker there and bump the worker that was there back to that player, back to you, back to another, back to an opponent as well. Um, in earlier designs of Euphoria also, the I, I kind of did exactly what you ended up doing with Apiary, where the workers would get smarter. The idea is if I'm working on a farm in this dystopia and Connie comes over and, and bumps me off that spot, she might spread a little rumor to me about this dystopia that we're in. I'm, and so I might gain a little information, a little intelligence. That worker might gain a little intelligence. But I found on dice that was a D six dice in particular, it was kind of fiddly to adjust them. And because we weren't actually rolling the dice in Euphoria and I had the dice, kind of took some fun out of the game. So I added this dice rolling mechanism. I, I used the, the numbers in a different way in terms of uh, looking at how much workers know about the, the dystopia. But uh, but I really like in, in, in Apiary that you, the, the workers aren't dice. They You are simply leveling them up. You're turning them and adjusting their intelligence. But yeah, there's that bumping. There's the, the gaining in strength in, in Apiary that's connected to Euphoria. Euphoria. Um, I think if people like Euphoria, they will almost certainly like Apiary. I'll pull out some workers here if you want to mention anything else, any other connections there that I'm forgetting. No, not at all. I'll just say that I do absolutely love the sort of um, dice or worker bumping mechanisms in these games. I mean, you know, I think first Euphoria and then Charterstone and, you know, some of the like Tim Phillips games aren't quite doing that, but they're certainly similar ways to manipulate workers just because there's something about some of um, the more traditional worker placement games. If a spot is just blocked, it's a little bit disheartening. I mean, it feels very like you're very thwarted. Whereas I think the bumping adds both a positive element, but also a, oh no, can I do this? Can I bump this worker back to them? And I think that's a much more interesting decision space, at least for me. So I'm really, really excited to be exploring it in another game. So. And there are also some places in Apiary where having other workers at the action matters as well. I think there's a, there's a few of those in Euphoria too, where you might, the, Connie may have placed a two strength worker on the explorer action. And that may, that extends the range of the queenship if I place a worker there, because it's the strength of my worker plus her worker. And so again, that's kind of that positive player interaction element. And optimizing that moment. Like I may have planned something else for my turn. You mentioned this a second ago, taking advantage of those moments and, and being a little tactical. Um, I may have planned something else, but if Connie placed a four value worker on an action, I might really want to want to also take that action at the time while that worker is still there. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Connie, what is your number two favorite game or game that you'd recommend for someone? 
Yeah, my number two favorite game is Glass Road. And this is a UA Rosenberg game that um, if I may get on a soapbox for just a moment here, I think it's so <laughs> underrated. I absolutely love this game. I don't know why people don't seem to enjoy it more than they do. I think it's just an excellent bang for your buck. It's an easy to teach game. It's pretty short, but I think it really punches above its, its weight class in terms of decision-making. Um, but the thing that I really wanted to talk about with Glass Road is the uh, tableau building. So in Glass Road, a big part of what you're doing is you are putting tiles onto an individual player board. Uh, and there are three types of tiles. They're all buildings. I think they're just called immediate, ongoing, and uh, end game. I don't think they have any kind of creative names, although I don't remember. Um, but those are obviously the sort of inspiration for the recruits, the developments, and the carvings in Apiary. Uh, and there's a couple of sort of elements beyond just the tile placement <clears throat> that I think started in Gloss Road and that really kind of carried all the way through to the final version of Apiary. And one is the adjacency requirements. There's a lot of things in Glass Road that depends on exactly specifically where you place that tile. You get to do something for each adjacent item, or if it's adjacent to something, you get to do something special. Um, so there's that kind of adjacency component. And Glass Road does use um, rectangular pieces, not hexes. So I think hexes actually even opens up that space a little bit more because you just have more adjacent sides. Um, but then the other thing that I really love about Glass Road that I think we've trans uh, transferred into Apiary is just you have these big stacks of tiles. And they always come out in different ordering orders and different combinations. And so every game is just going to feel different. And it just feels like you're always discovering slightly new combinations and new ways to play. Um, and so that's something that I absolutely love about Glass Road. Yeah, and I think that we've, um, I think that is in Apiary as well, because you're not going to see every tile in every game. Um, and they're certainly not going to come out in the same order in the same combinations. So that's Glass Road. I wish I could add more to this, but I, I it's been a long time since I played Glass Road. I need to play it again. I And when I, when I think most about Glassword, I think about the action selection mechanism, which I believe is simultaneous. You, know, you yep. select a roll, mm -hmm. and, um, and that is yeah. not something that's an APR, but it's a neat mechanism too. It's absolutely cool. And I absolutely love the dials too, the resource generation in Glassword. So there's two dials, and basically, if you get enough resources on each wheel, it will automatically generate one of the um, the advanced resources or the refined resources, which is, a, I think, a really interesting puzzle because a lot of times you'll actually very consciously want to keep one resource low to keep that wheel locked in place because as soon as you generate that resource, the wheel will automatically turn. And I think that's just such a clever puzzle. I absolutely love it, but not related at all to APR. <laughs> yeah, but it's a, yeah, a great mechanism to talk about. That's Glass Road, Connie is number two. My number two is the one that I don't own, but it is on Board Game Arena and that is Teotihuacan. Um, this is a game in the Tolkien series of games where you are moving workers around a big rondelle a rondelle of, of actions where the number of pips on your workers matters. Uh, this is very similar to the strength mechanism of the workers in Apiary. Um, and in Tejuakan, there's kind of these big spreadsheety charts on each action to show you exactly what you're getting based on, on the, the, the value of the, those workers. Um, I think the Apiary board is a little bit more streamlined, but th that complexity in Teotihuacan is, is fun too, to see all those different, the different things that you can get depending on what strength your worker is by the time it gets to a certain action. And there's also, I should have looked up this in advance, but th there is um, a worker kind of retirement mechanism too in Teotihuacan after, it's either when they reach six or after they would go beyond six. Do you remember what, which one it is? I don't remember which one it yeah. is. I think they call it ascending, right? In the ascending. game, something like that. But yeah, yeah. and I, I think that's, yeah. That's obviously That's a very similar to Yeah. Yeah. Like the timing of that. I like that they, it's similar to what you did in Napier. I like that it, it is a moment of, of loss a little bit. You're losing this very powerful worker, but you're also gaining this permanent place in, in Apiary in the hibernation comb and a, a very important instant benefit, or it can be very important 
um, depending on how how early you got there. And Tio Huakan does something different, similar, where you're getting a powerful benefit. Um, you might even be moving up a track when that happens too. So there's kind of a, a sense of permanence, permanent uh, gain there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I haven't. I honestly haven't played that one in quite a while, but I need to to get it back to the table. Um, but I remember I actually started working on Aviary before that um, before it came out and saw, mm -hmm. and I was like, oh no, it's the same thing, and then played it. And they're obviously very very yeah. different games, but I just love that worker aging, you know, aging and ascension mechanism. So. Yeah. So that's my number two. Let's get to our number one. What is your number one? And I'm also curious, not only the connection to it, but why you chose it as the number one slot here. Yes, absolutely. So my number one is the Voyages of Marco Polo, specifically the first one. Um, but I guess it doesn't really matter. But anyway, <laughs> Voyages of Marco Polo, the reason it's number one is sort of twofold. And first is one of my favorite games of all time. I absolutely love it. Um, but second of all, it is probably the most direct uh, influence on Apiary and on the kind of concept for Apiary, which is funny because I don't actually know how much of that carried through. Uh, to the final game, you know, some of the earlier versions of Apiary had a map that you were exploring that felt much more like the map uh, that you're exploring in Marco Polo. There was also a cost element in Apiary. For a while, we had what was called V-Bucks. Again, the theme was very loose, but if you went to a place where somebody else already was, you had to, had to pay money to the bank, essentially, which is very similar to Marco Polo. But I think there's a couple of kind of core concepts and a couple of feelings, uh, sort of way, ways that the game feels that are very sort of similar and still related, even though some of the core mechanisms are quite a bit different. Um, so the way Marco Polo works, if folks haven't played it, is you roll a set of five dice at the beginning of every round. Those are your workers. You're placing those onto the board. The strength of those dice or the, the number on the dice determines the strength of the action. However, if you ever go to a spot where somebody has already been, and that's very common because there aren't very many worker placement spots in the game, you have to pay $1 per pip. Um, and so it sort of sets up this real tension of you want the high dice because you want the strong actions, but you want the low dice because you can still take the action later on in the round. Um, and so I think that idea of different of sort of worker strengths and, and placing different workers on different spaces and that having a different effect definitely carried through. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about are uh, sort of the faction abilities. So Marco Polo is known for having like sledgehammer strength faction abilities that just break the fundamental rules of the game. I mean, one of the faction abilities in that game, you just don't roll your dice. Um, another one, you don't pay to go on to a spot that somebody else has been on, etc. You know, the faction abilities in Apiary are obviously much more minor, they're much more nudges, um, but that was something that I wanted to have in the game because I do think it's really important from a replayability standpoint to just kind of give people slightly different incentives every game because otherwise I think you can very easily fall into a pattern where the first action is always this and the second action is always that. And so you kind of have the first, you know, half of your game structured already. And I think that's a lot less interesting puzzle than, oh, I got this new faction, it's pushing me in a slightly different direction. Um, and so I, I think that that's sort of an important element of it. The other thing that I think really carried through from Marco Polo to Apiary is the sense of being able to break the rules. Um, you know, whenever you use a faction ability in Marco Polo, you are just breaking a very fundamental rule of the game. And it feels great. Like when you're a player, you're like, oh man, I just broke this rule, it felt wonderful. And I think that really carries through to Apiary, but mostly through the tiles and the cards, more so than specifically the factions. Um, you know, as we were talking about with this leveling and aging of bees, I mean, there are cards and tiles uh, in Apiary that will say, let you pull back a bee without retiring it, or even decrease the strength of a bee, or speed increase the strength of it. And so, like, it allows you a lot of ways to get those extra strength for actions. And those strength for actions are so juicy that every time you can pull it off, you get the sort of real hit of like, yes, I did something good. You know, I cheated the system. And I think that feels really, really good. So anyway, that's that's kind of Marco Polo. As I said, it's my number one on my list, both because I absolutely love the game and because it was the primary inspiration for Apiary. Again, even though the final game looks so different. I I have 
found that I, I, I love asymmetry in games. I love the, the different levels and Marco Polo, you're right. It's, it's really, really high levels of asymmetry. Um, I admire that. I appreciate that. I have a lot of fun with it. I've found that I think in the games that we publish, I'm, I'm leaning more and more towards the nudge, the nudge at the beginning, a little bit of asymmetry, but then earned asymmetry. And I think you do that so well in apiary. Um, like you're, you're choosing the asymmetry as you go. And it's related to, often related to engine building. You mentioned that the, the recruit tiles are one of them. The, uh, the seed cards give you like one-time asymmetry, one-time powerful thing that feels really, really good. And uh, also you can upgrade your faction tiles. There's a starting side and then there is an upgraded side. And that's a choice. You don't have to do that. Every game you might not do that, but uh, the, the upgraded side is better. You're earning that stronger asymmetry on the back if you choose to pursue it. I really like what you did with that, that you were choosing this path of asymmetry throughout the game. And that is variable because you don't, the the uh, the recruit tiles are going to come up in different orders. Sometimes you won't see certain recruit tiles in a game. So it's going to be different from game to game. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think they can combine together in interesting ways too. I mean, there's definitely some where you can kind of put together two things in a way that makes an action feel almost free. And that's that's always, always really exciting as well. So. Yeah. So does Voyages of Marco Polo as Connie's number one. My number one is... Honey Buzz. I really had no preface for it because it is such a, uh, a strong connection to, for me for, between this and Apiary. Um, this is fully a kind of a, well, actually, it's not even entirely a real world bee thing. You can see they're kind of anthropomorphic animals in this game, but these are bees on Earth opposed to bees in space. And uh, in, in Honey Buzz, it is a, also a worker placement game. Worker placement is done very differently in this game, but it is a worker placement game. It is also a high building game with engine building. Um, but it's interesting to, me, interesting to me that you did all these things differently in Apiary and as, just, as Paul did them very differently in Honey Buzz. Um, I think both games belong in a connection, belong in the collection of, of someone who enjoys bees and enjoys that sense of progression in a game and enjoys the kind of the joy and simplicity of worker placement. Um, Honey Buzz was almost the game that made me hesitant to publish Apiary because I was like, okay, th this game already exists that is about bees, that is strongly themed from the from day one, from the ground up about bees, and it has all those elements of engine building, high building, and worker placement. But after I saw what you did with Apiary and saw how different it was, and that you were open to putting a little bit of a speculative twist on it in these bees going to space, um, I was I was open to it. And also, uh, I, I ended up loving working with Connie Paul, the designer of Honey Buzz, is one of my friends. I play disc golf with Paul. So I love that two of my favorite, or my two favorite B-themed games are made by wonderful people. So um, I hope people who try Honey Buzz, who love Honey Buzz, will try Apiary and vice versa. If you've never played Honey Buzz and you enjoy Apiary, I think you'll you'll really enjoy this game too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just one one quick thing to add though. I, I do think it's really interesting how um, in some ways both of the, they're both worker placement games, but they both approached bees a little bit differently because it seems like very unreasonable that a bee is going to block a worker placement spot that's not really very thematic. And so, you know, what a beery does is obviously the bumping as we've talked about. And then what honey buzz does is I believe you need to pay one more, place one more worker than the last person. Um, and so the spots still aren't blocked, but there's kind of that like jockeying for position. And I really, really like that. I'll also mention too, I really love honey buzz has a very spatial thinky puzzle on how to orient the tiles in a way that I think is very different than apiary, but I think it's really, really satisfying when you can get a, like one of your perfect, you know, hive rings to work out perfectly. So. Yeah, that is, there. you're right. There's a great spatial puzzle um, as to exactly which tiles you gain and where you place them in your hive in Honey Buzz. I think there's still also a good spatial puzzle in, in Apiary too. Many of the, the starter uh, factions give you a little puzzle of here's a good place to place certain types of, of tiles. Um, certain tiles come out and, and want that adjacency. 
Uh, but you're right, it is, it's a core part of, of mm -hmm. every decision that you make in HoneyBuzz. Yeah, absolutely. So these are our 10 games that we'd recommend if you enjoy Apiary. This video is going to come out before anyone has played Apiary, so it works the other way in this case. If you enjoy any of these games, or especially a couple of these games, I think you'll have a lot of fun with Apiary and I hope you give it a try. Connie, thank you so much for your time, for coming up with this list and thinking about it, and, and for designing Apiary. It's been a pleasure to work with you on it. Well, yeah, you too. And uh, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. If you have any questions in the comments below, or if you can see any other connections between Apiary and other games, let us know in the comments and I will, uh, I'll talk to you there. Thanks.